Hello and welcome to another episode of the Monash Musculoskeletal Research Unit podcast. My name is Patrick Valance. We're also joined by co-host Associate Professor Peter Maliaris, who's one of our leaders at the MMRU. And we're joined by guest Dr. Dawson Kidgel. Uh, Dr. D- uh, Dr. Dawson Kidgel is a senior lecturer and advanced research coordinator in the Department of Physiotherapy at Monash University in Australia. His research focuses on the neurophysiology of exercise and he uh, specializes in the technique of transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS. Uh, This is a non-invasive method of measuring the functional properties or neuroplasticity of the human brain, in particular, the primary motor cortex. He's authored over 100 peer-reviewed journal papers, uh, and these primarily focus on the effects of exercise and non-invasive brain stimulation on modulating neuroplasticity in humans. Welcome, Dawson. Thanks, Pat. Thanks, Pete. Now, Dawson, you've joined us today uh, with the focus on uh, talking about the importance of understanding how to prescribe low uh, and and intensity in exercise. Uh, that might be a good starting point. So, covering some of the concepts, uh, or the, the the definitions even of of load and intensity. Uh, I know you've crit- critiqued these in the past quite a bit. Yeah, I guess um, you know we often use. Um, exercise to prescribe modalities of intervention to treat certain um, pathologies, whether that may be a musculoskeletal pathology or a neurological pathology, or whether it's just general health and fitness. Um, and it all starts with understanding, one, what the acute variables are that you can actually modulate. Um, and the most common ones to, to most people, I guess, in the, in the physiotherapy world or the sports medicine the environment would be um, load, would be one. Um, but I guess when we look at the way in which we quantify load, um, most people think it's just some sort of level of, of percentage of your maximal 1RM. Um, but it's a little bit more complicated than that because um, load is one element in the way in which we can overload the body, but it comes down to how many times is that load imparted upon the tissue, um, which then adds an element of volume. And then there's the component of, well, how often are you going to load that tissue um, with that volume across a week, across a month, across a series of months, um, which then changes the total, um, what we call a total load volume. So I guess um, in many instances, we often fall back on the the easiest approach, which is using a percentage of 1RM, um, but there's limitations um, with allocating percentages of your 1RM. And I'll give you an example. So for instance, we assume that at a given percentage of 1RM that an individual can meet a predetermined number of repetitions. So, for example, if I allocate um, 70% of a 1RM for squat, um, according to the National Strength and Conditioning Association, it's assumed you can probably do about 12 repetitions. But what we actually find is that if we were to um, you know, test a range of people and ask them to train at 70% for 12 repetitions, we find that some people will be able to do more than 12 repetitions at 70%, and some will be able to do less. And in fact, the standard deviation around that set point is about 25 reps, plus or minus. So um, what we find is that our exercise prescription load um, intensity is not very patient-specific, which raises questions as to what is going to be the response? What's going to be the adaptive response in the tissue that we're targeting when we're using those guidelines with such variability? And as a clinician, you're never going to know 
they're capable of reaching those 12 repetitions if you're prescribing that 70% value. So they may be way above or they may be way below or they may be somewhere pretty close. So I think that the first step is, is to understand that there's many ways in which we can load tissue and percentages of one RM is just one. Um, once you're decided on the loading, you then need to work out, well, what's the total volume going to be? Now, volume can be calculated simply as the number of sets multiplied by the number of repetitions, but that doesn't really tell you about the intensity. So what you really need to do is, is add another factor in there, which is the load. Now, say we call this load volume, and it's a very simple way for, for people to be able to periodize or plan what the loading intensity cycles will be for people. Um, so load volume is really sets multiplied by repetitions multiplied by the load. Now that load can be a percentage of one RM if that's what you choose to do, or it can just simply be the weight um, in kilos or pounds that you're using for a particular exercise. Um, so using load volume is a much more simpler way to track and progress how you're going to overload a patient accordingly. But the way in which you choose to overload a patient really comes down to understanding, I guess, some basic principles around sort of the dose-response relationship. Can I um, ask a question on that? Uh, sure. sure. So uh, the one thing that can be confusing for people when they're sort of learning about this is the terminology and it's and i know it's very clear in your head because we've had a, quite a few discussions about it uh, but um you do see in some places volume being referred to as load plus reps and sets can you just so comment on that is yeah, that which that's, is load, that's load volume so the correct term would be load volume um because we know volume on its own is going to be sets by reps but if you want to add intensity, which is our guiding adaptive response. So intensity is the way in which we organise the adaptive response. And then we have frequency, which is part of the volume equation as well, that organises that response. So we have how we're going to get the adaptive response followed by how we organise it. So um, really, you should be looking at load volume um, because that's what you're asking people to do. So sets by reps is okay but it tells you nothing about the load or the intensity that's being imparted within a cycle. So if you can then add your sets multiplied by your reps, multiplied by your actual load, you'll be a bit more objective in what sort of loading parameters are being exerted onto the tissue. There's nothing worse than rocking up to a session and thinking, oh, I think I did, you know, eight reps of 15 kilo, but I can't remember. So it should be load volume we're using. Um, that should be that's the terminology that load volume. Yeah, load volume. Okay. Got yeah, it. and then then what happens with that load volume? That can either be high load or low load, but you could make the volume component equal. So, for instance, if you look at um, Josh Norton's work, the volume's the same but there's different loading parameters and that's going to cause a different response within the tissue based upon the load. Um, but there's other factors you can also add on top of that to make the intensity um, of, the, of the training more controlled as well. So you might add, um, we often talk about speed of movement, so tempo or timing. Um, 
So one way we can, can look at that is by measuring velocity. So looking at the speed at which the barbell or the dumbbell or the limb moves at and use those factors um, to, to gauge load volume as well. So for instance, if I wanted to increase my load volume, I could um, get people to, um, we'll use the squat as an example, for instance, or the bench press. I could get them to do a one RM test. And during that one RM test, I could measure their velocity. Um, I could then assign a percentage of load, um, say 70%, or I could use repetitions in reserve. So a load where they've got one or two repetitions in reserve at the end of the set. I could measure the velocity of the first rep and measure the velocity of the last rep within that set. And then I could add a threshold of how much velocity I want them to lose because velocity will be an indication of fatigue, um, which would then be associated to time under tension. Um, and if I want to increase the time under tension, then within that training session of that particular person, I would increase the amount of velocity loss. So rather than losing only 10% of my speed for my first rep, I might prolong that exercise and the number of sets until I get to a point of say 40 or 50% loss. What that basically means is that I've all of a sudden I've, I've now controlled my load volume. So if I can just go through that, uh, mm. just, just for the practical application of that, because there's a lot of info there. Um, if you were, say, assessing someone's squat in a clinical setting and you wanted to, say, prescribe a load that was going to um, going to challenge them, then what you're, what you're suggesting is that you would measure their velocity um, during those movements from the start to the end of the repetitions, what, say you've prescribed eight, and you're looking for a certain drop-off in the velocity. Yep. There, would you have to go through... Uh, a fatigue set to work out what that velocity drop is? No, no. So, no, you don't. What you basically do is, so the, the first part of that question is if you're going to take someone to fatigue, you're basically training to failure. The evidence is profound that there's no need to go to failure. And that relates to that dose-response relationship about that inverted U. Like there's only so much to teach you can take before it becomes consequential, if you like. Um, so the easiest way to identify these is to choose the DRM that you want to work at, as you said, eight. And all you would need to do is measure the velocity rep by rep. And what we tend to find is reps three, four, five, six are normally the slower ones. So you just look at these, the first rep, because that's going to be the fastest velocity. And then your last rep within that set will be the lowest velocity. And depending on what those values are, you just set up a threshold. You might say, okay, for today, we're only going to lose 20% of velocity and that would be what we would call a 20% velocity loss. Now I think, um, and I'm just thinking out loud here, and I'm certainly by no means an expert in tendons, but when we add these velocity loss thresholds, we can change the training response. So for instance, when we go between um, zero loss and 20% loss, we're training more rate of force development and power because you're not getting proximity to failure. So therefore, the movement speed's relatively sustained. So it's a good way to train for rate of force development and power. Whereas if you are dealing with an athlete that's post-ACL and they need a bit of hypertrophy through the knee extensors, you might add a 40% loss because we know that the longer you prolong the set, the more hypertrophy you will get. So there's ways in which we can use these velocity measures. 
But the critical thing about it is we're intimately controlling the load velocity relationship or the training or the load volume relationship. So we've got intra-session quantitative data that tells us exactly what they're doing rep by rep, session by session, um, which means you can then start to move into other principles of, of exercise such as auto-regulation and reps in reserve and, and things like that. That makes a lot of sense, um, but uh, I was just so so looking at sort of regulating based on velocity and as you say, setting the threshold, uh, and that can that threshold can depend on uh, what you're sort of training for and what you're doing. But I'm just wondering uh, how would you how would you go about initially setting that eight RM load? Yeah, so I think the best way to do it would be. Um, what we call a eight repetition maximum um, as opposed to a one RM. Um, so obviously just to go back a step, the percentage of one RM, when you use a percentage, there's an assumed number of repetitions. I think if you've got a target number of repetitions that you want patients to be doing, then just test them under that condition. So in that sense, you do an eight RM test, which would simply be the same protocol as a one RM, but they fail at eight repetitions. Now, often you can't do that clinically because of factors associated to the reasons as to why they're seeing you. Um, so what you could do is, is, is select a load um, that maybe they can do eight, but then you could ask them how many do you think they could do on top of eight? So if they said, oh, I think I could kind of do two, um, well, then that means you've got two repetitions in reserve. Now, that load or that weight of your views for that eight reps is still better than using a percentage of one RM and prescribing eight repetitions because we know the standard deviation around that is so large. In this case, if you've got only two repetitions in reserve, you're relatively close to the training load you should be prescribing. So I guess what I'm saying is, is using a percentage of one RM is not always the best way to go. Um, there are other ways. Um, and even the, the key thing with repetitions in reserve, so this is, this is a gauge of controlling load volume um, because it's intensity related um, is if you have more than six repetitions in reserve, anything above that becomes not very reliable and you're probably better off either increasing the load and getting their number of repetitions in reserve down um, because the, the, the further we are away from a maximal effort, the less reliable the use of repetitions in reserve become. Um, and you can also use the repetitions in reserve in conjunction with RPE. Now, this isn't rating of perceived exertion used for aerobic exercise. This is RPE um, scale designed for strength training. So Michael Zordis from Florida University developed this RPE. Um, so it's very different to Borg scale. Um, so when we look at using repetitions in reserve as a, as a measure of load volume and intensity, um, in proximity to failure, it's very closely related. So for instance, if I've only got one repetition in, in reserve, so I could only do one more repetition in that set, um, and my RPE is like nine, that's pretty much, I think the correlation is about 0.9 to actually going to failure. So these subjective measures are quite objective from a cliniometric point of view. And the beautiful thing about using repetitions in reserve in combination with RPE to control your load intensity and your load volume um, is that you can manipulate it within a training session. 
So, um, and this is just an example, and I'm just speaking broadly, so, so feel free to, to cut me up at any stage. Normally what we tend to do is, is we prescribe cycles. So now I would imagine in, in any sort of, you know, musculoskeletal pathology, you'd use a similar approach because one session is not going to fix it. Um, let's just say we have someone who's, who's had some sort of knee injury, they're lacking maximal strength, you know they need to do strength training for their legs and it's probably needs to be done over a four-week period. You plan it, you periodize it, you overload it, you do all those things that are correct. You might start off at 60, you know, 60% with you know, four reps in reserve in one week, you might go to 70% and then you have you know, three repetitions in reserve, et cetera, et cetera. What will happen within that cycle? And if you're asking them to train three times per week, within that four-week period, they're going to rock up to the clinic and they're going to say, you know what, I can't do the 80 85% effort today with one rep in reserve. Um, so what we need to be able to do is manipulate that session to make sure we still achieve the goal of that session. Um, and one way you can do that is that you shift their repetitions in reserve. So if you said that today we only want one, well, you still give them one. It just means you're going to change the load on the bar. Yeah because there's certain readiness factors that we, so you can use what's called the Omni scale, O-M-N-I, which is a very simple questionnaire that gauges the readiness factors of a participant to partake in resistance training. Um, and what you might find is they might've had some poor sleep that night and they've woken up feeling a little bit lethargic, a little bit tired, um, maybe not so, so well mentally to be doing the session. So rather than scrapping the session, you just, manipulate what the load intensity will be based upon their reps in reserve and the RPE. And then what you can also do is go back to that velocity. So you know they're going to be slower on their movement because of the, the um, whether it's residual fatigue or mental fatigue, bottom line is the bar is going to be moving slower. So you can adjust the velocity. So you might say, okay, well, we're supposed to be doing our set one at this velocity, set two at this velocity and set three at this velocity. But you can still maintain those velocities. You just need to drop the weight off the bar so they still achieve it. So you're still getting the training goal. So there's many ways in which we can control within session training intensity around all of this load volume prescription concept. Can you just go over that point about the um, the correlation between, I think you said, uh, the scale? The using reserve and RPE, yeah. An RPE. So, yeah. so those, th those, that's been looked at quite a bit. It has, yeah. So it's been correlated. So looking at um, criterion validity. So, I mean, obviously measuring velocity requires a bit of infrastructure. Um, obviously, the more reliable you want your velocity measures to be, the more money you need to spend on, on infrastructure, such as, you know, muscle lab or gym aware or whatever, whatever the apps, there's all these different types of apps you can use. Um, so what they've done is they've, they've looked at um, barbell velocity, reps in reserve, and RPE, and what they've shown is that all of them correlate quite high, like in the nines, to barbell velocity, which is an objective measure of what's happening to the neuromuscular system. So what that basically means is you can drop velocity off, provided you, you're quite good at um, making sure the patient understands what the RPE levels are. So, um, which is quite positive. And the paper just came out the other week in Journal of Strength and Conditioning showing that good 
clinicians can actually see the drop off in the bar. So the, the decrease in movement speed in the bar and they've been able to predict quite nicely what the actual velocity drop was. So once you get more educated and more accustomed to these types of interventions, um, you don't necessarily need all the sort of, you know, whiz bang, kit and caboodle. You can just um, use your eye. Um, I, I can relate to that because sometimes when I'm doing um, uh, strength training, the velocity drops off to zero. Because mm -hmm. you don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that, that's exactly right. So all, all I'm basically saying is um, that for the people out there who have always used a percentage of 1RM, um, that's fine. Just understand that the expected number of repetitions at a given percentage is not always going to work for you. The simple way is to do an RM, ask them if there's any reps in reserve, and then use that as a guide. Um, because then you can go on and start going into you know parts of that sounds really good. Would and what level of uh, what level of um, uh, intensity on the RPE would you recommend that people train to? Well, it just depends on what the training goal is. I mean, typically for maximal strength, so not, not looking at cross-sectional area changes, but for maximal strength, you would need to be up around the one rep in reserve and sort of, you know, nine to 10 RPE. But you can't do that every session. <laughs> so depending on how many sessions you're doing, we now start to move into a different concept of or how do we periodize and manipulate the sessions within a training week. Um, which moves really into concepts of periodization. Um, and there's ways in which you can manipulate that. If you're looking for more sort of, you know, muscle endurance or, or hypertrophy, um, you're, you're increasing the volume, you're using a submaximal load, but you've probably got three or four repetitions in reserve with a, a lower RPE because the intensity factor, the hardness factor is not there. Um, so it just depends um, on what your training goal is. But would it also be possible, and that does make sense. So you're you're looking at um, you know sort of maximal strength or endurance or hypertrophy or whatever you're training for. But would you also sometimes be training at a lower rep range with higher intensity, but maybe not reaching always that one rep in reserve? Is that sort of what you're talking about with auto regulation? Yeah, yeah. So basically, um, you want to avoid going to failure, regardless of what your training outcome is. So because the evidence is quite clear that proximity to failure um, is a better method than going to failure. And the way we can, we can monitor um, proximity to failure is reps in reserve um, and, and RPE. And they're really simple things you can manipulate. And the, and the good thing about the way in which you can manipulate it is that even on, say, today, Friday, end of the week, if the weight on the bar for a squat is 80 kilos for me, and I've been prescribed eight repetitions with two in reserve, um, and I've come in and I don't feel that good, I can still prescribe eight repetitions with two reps in reserve. Because all I've got to do is drop the weight off the bar slightly. And based upon my readiness, I'm still going to get the appropriate training response without pushing me into a phase of exhaustion. Um, and the other benefit about that is if you're logging all this down, you've actually got real-time data session by session from your patient. So, because the key is going to be 
making sure you, you record what the weight is, how many repetitions they've had in reserve, what their RPE is, and how many sets and reps they've done, because straight away you've now got that load volume. And you'll know that even if they've done slightly less work because the load's been slightly reduced, the, the volume's not going to be that different. The load volume will be, but the overall volume, because right, you're still doing the same, but you've still got the same in reserve. It's just the load volume's changed. Um, and it's a much better way to train people because you can push them out of plateaus. You can still hit them quite nicely um, when they're not feeling so ready to be partaking in that session um, rather than giving the session away. But there's ways in which we can control it. Would you say it's protective against overtraining as well? Yes, very much so. Um, and in fact, you know, no, I don't like to talk about bodybuilders all the time, but um, one thing they do very, very well is, is um, they're good at monitoring their, their volume. Um, and there is some evidence coming out now that consistently across a cycle, whether it's a 12-week block or 16-week block, keeping two to three reps in reserve set by set is most effective for reducing overtraining, reducing injuries, um, and improving strength because you're not going to that level of, of um, failure. And there's issues with going with failure. You change the movement strategy, you start to recruit muscles you don't necessarily need to be recruiting. Um, one thing, in, in particularly in physiotherapy, um, it's very important that you understand how to activate muscle. Um, and activating muscle comes down to the quality of the movement. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to keep the tissue under tension for a long period of time because over time, there's going to be a change in the neural strategy, which means you're probably directing um, motor units away from the task at hand. Um, but using repetitions in reserve and looking at the total load volume might be a better way than having time under tension. Because if you prolong a set with you know increasing the load volume, so doing more sets essentially, it's still the same as at some aspect. It still means that the muscles under tension for a longer period of time compared to the group that um, has done less work. So holding something for 15 seconds or 20 seconds or 30 seconds um, could be achieved simply by prolonging the sets on an exercise. And, and just clarifying, time under tension being the, the time that a, a, a muscle is under tension con yeah. through concentric, eccentric, isometric phase. Yeah, yep. yeah and, and this is the benefit of um, using velocity because you can control the time under tension objectively. And you can control it for each phase. Um, yeah, look, it depends how deep you want to go, but you can, you can obtain all this data quite nicely um, through 1RM testing as well. So using velocity during 1RM can be used to predict what your 1RM load will be, which means your 1RM becomes a bit quicker. Um, but if you have velocity um, chucked in the mix, you actually know what your slowest velocity is because it should be at your 1RM. So based upon there, you can then add prescription like a percentage of velocity. So if you're two meters per second is, you know, your speed at your one RM, well, then you can add percentages of that, which means the weight's going to be lighter, yeah? So there's, there's ways, there's many ways in which we can do it. It's a big, big picture or overview picture of, of some of the concepts you've discussed. So we've got our reps in reserve, our RPE, our velocity loss. These these are, are tools at our disposal to um to, to make sure that we're, um, yeah, we're training people at the intensity that we're, uh, well, we're, we're wanting to train them at so that we're getting the, 
the specific physiological response we're after. Is that a, a nice summary? It is. But the, the, the key thing is it's, it's measurable, obtainable, and objective. So there's a very simple ways in which you can get intra-session information off your patients by just asking them a couple of things. Um, and it gets all back into that auto-regulation, which means you're controlling that load volume, that load intensity across the period of, of rehabilitation, which I don't think people do very well. They're sort of guessing as they come in, oh, I think you can do this. Oh, well, you did this on Monday. On Wednesday, we might try this. If you've got the time, quickly do an RM test, ask them if they've got a few more in reserve. You're going to be a lot closer to your one RM regardless, um, and you've got a starting point. It doesn't require any um, special equipment, any expensive equipment necessarily as well. And, no. and velocity loss as well. Um, I know in our discussions with and, and, and Peter as well, we've been looking at different equipments and, and technology to measure velocity loss and it's um, yeah, becoming a lot cheaper, a lot more accessible. No, no, it is. Um, but you need to just keep in mind for those people who want to go on and look at this further that um, when we look at velocity loss, we still need to validate it for a whole range of exercises. Um, you know, bench press, lat pull down, squats, snatches, all those sorts of fundamental movements that's been validated on. But you know, if you're training someone's elbow and you want to do wrist extension and elbow flexion and things like that, um, the, the data has not been obtained yet as to the, to the reliability or the validity of velocity for those sorts of movements. Um, but they're coming. But it is an emerging area and you know it just makes sense from a neuromuscular perspective like when you look at neuromuscular fatigue it's a failure to, to drive the muscle um and the net output of that is not only a decrease in force but you can't move as quick so it seems to be a pretty simple thing to to, to measure uh, to quantify and control the intensity of training fantastic well dawson we might wrap up there we've we've covered um quite a few concepts that hopefully have been uh, important and, and interesting for our listeners. Um, so thank you very much for joining us today. No worries. Thanks, Todd. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Dawson.